It is indeed, as Jeff said, a privilege to be able to, in a sense, be a fly on the wall for this important meal, this Last Supper, this meal that Jesus spent with his now 11 apostles on the night uh, before he was betrayed and tried and wrongly convicted and sent to a Roman cross to die a torturous death. And on that cross, invisibly to the eye, to bear the wrath of God for the sins of his people. They are only a few hours away from that beginning. And Jesus, nevertheless, is giving his apostles words of comfort. Even as he is approaching this day of terror, he is bringing comfort to his apostles who are troubled in heart. These are Jesus' final words before the crucifixion, and again, we have the privilege of seeing what those words were to them and what they mean to us. Please open your Bibles up. Our text is John chapter 14, and uh, we will be continuing to look at a section of this at a time. Our passage today is John 14, verses 18 through 26 is what the bulletin says. We're really going to focus on 18 through 24. If you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to keep them open because we'll be looking at different words and phrases in this as we go along. If you don't have a Bible with you but would like to use one, uh, there is a Bible in the row in front of you underneath, and if you pull that out and use it, you'll find our passage today on page, what is it, 901, I think it says, yes, 901. John chapter 14, beginning at verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet in a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Jesus begins this section by saying to them, I will not leave you as orphans. Now again, Jesus has been telling them multiple times and in multiple ways that he's leaving. That's why they're troubled in heart, because Jesus has said, again, very plainly to them, I am leaving you. He's also talked about horrific things that are going to happen, that, that one of them is going to betray him, that 
that Peter, their leader, is going to deny three times that he even knows him before the rooster crows in the morning. But he has said, without stuttering, I'm leaving you. And in fact, not only is he leaving them, but he's leaving them and going to a place where they cannot come. You can imagine Jesus being their master, their their Lord, their teacher, the one they've followed for three years, the one that has taught them everything they know until now, telling them, I'm leaving you soon, tonight, tomorrow. I'll be leaving you before you know it, and you cannot come with me. So it's good, and it's touching, in a sense, that here in verse 18, he says to them, I will not leave you as orphans. I'm leaving you, but I will not leave you as orphans. It's interesting just how many times in this dinner that he has used familial language with them. In John 13, 33, earlier in the course of the meal, he says to them, little children, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come, my little children. Then earlier, a little bit later than that, but earlier than what we read just now, he he said to them, look, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Notice he's using this familial language, the the language of little children and and coming with me to live in my father's house. He's using that kind of language specifically while he's telling them that he's leaving them. And as you may remember from a few sermons ago, when we looked at that discussion there, in my father's house are many rooms, and I'm, I'm going to leave you and go to my father's house and prepare a place for you there come and get you and take you to live with me there in my father's house, probably what he's talking about there is less maybe what we think, which is true, which is that when we are adopted into God's family through Christ, we become sons and daughters of the king, and we become joint heirs, and Christ is in that sense our brother, and we are adopted sons of of God the Father. That's true. But when Jesus is using that kind of language and that I'm going to go back to my father's house, prepare a place for you, come and get you and take you to live with me, that kind of language was actually the language that a bridegroom would say to his bride. Because a bridegroom would oftentimes go back to the home that he grew up in and would build onto it and expand that home so that he and his bride could live there together. And so Jesus is, is giving them all kinds of language. You, you are my little children. You are adopted sons of my father. You will live in my father's house. You are my bride. It's interesting that he's, again, using this kind of language all the while giving them hard truth that I'm leaving you and you can't come with me right now. I point that out to say that, that Jesus here, notice he understands their feelings. He understands their weaknesses. He understands their emotion. In fact, Scripture says he was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. He understands what it's like to 
dwell in flesh in this present evil age, in this fallen world with all the troubles that it brings. And so he gives them truth. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't tell them what they want to hear. He tells them the truth of what is about to happen, and yet he gives them the truth saturated in comfort and in love. Jesus isn't coldly bashing them over the head with the truth that they will be left alone. And as you read through the Bible, what you find in Scripture is truth. Not my truth or your truth or not words that we want to hear, but truth that we need to hear. And yet all throughout the Bible are given to us as God's children vast words of comfort to get us through this life until we meet him. May that be, may Jesus' way here of speaking the truth in love, of speaking the truth that people need to hear in comfort be a model for us as a church. As we sometimes need to share with a brother or sister truth that they need to hear and nevertheless follow our Lord's guidance here. He has called them little children. He's called them essentially his bride. And he specifically says, look, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. Because in those, and probably in all times of history, even today, but especially then, widows and orphans were the most helpless, most vulnerable people in society. And Jesus understands what they're feeling. That as he leaves, they are going to feel incredibly helpless. They, they have put all their eggs in his basket. They've left all of their, uh, the, 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 the kind of um, occupations and, and all of their dreams and all of the things that they were pursuing before, they left all that behind, dropped their fishing nets and dropped their tax collector notebook and all of these things and put all of their eggs in his basket thinking that he's going to be the Messiah and he's going to roll in and throw out the Roman Empire and all will be like it was in the days of King David. And that's not happening. They are going to feel abandoned like an orphan helpless and vulnerable and yet although he's leaving them he assures them that won't be the case why well look at the next words i will come to you i will come to you now again we've already seen phrases and words and, and things in this whole discussion here that all only make sense coming from the words of god how, what can Jesus possibly mean by this? I'm leaving you, you can't come with me, but don't worry, I won't leave you as orphans because I will come to you. Well, I threw this out at the dinner table and said, you know, we, we read this passage, what do you think Jesus is talking about here? And, and really, there were three options that are kind of thrown about by scholars, and those three options were mentioned by the kids and by Michelle at the dinner table. What does he mean by, I will come to you? Well, one of the options thrown out is, what he means is at his resurrection. What Jesus is saying here, when he says, I'm going somewhere and you can't come with me, but after I go there, 
I will come back and I will come to you. I won't leave you as orphans. What he means by that, if you're taking it that way, is that I will leave you and go to the cross. I will die. I will be buried. You will feel alone. But when I rise bodily and physically, I will come back to you and you will see me again. And that's very true. That could be what Jesus is talking about because that, in fact, did happen. The, the bodily resurrection, the bodily physical resurrection of Jesus is central to Christianity. If Christianity loses that, we might as well fold up and go home. If Jesus didn't actually physically rise from the tomb and show up three days later in a glorified body and walk around and talk to his disciples, then let's go home. Let's, let's, let's just pack it all in. Paul says that. If Christ has not been raised bodily, he means, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people the most to be pitied. So we can't ever go along with those who kind of skip over the bodily resurrection and say, well, it doesn't really matter. When I was in seminary, we, we read different uh, liberal theologians who, that would say those kind of things. Well, what Jesus means by that is he, he rose in spirit in their hearts and minds. No, if there's no empty tomb, we're finished. And he did come to them after he bodily rose, and they did see him. Well, perhaps, though, as was said at the dinner table, he doesn't mean that. What if he means the second coming? Is that what Jesus means? That, look, I won't leave you as orphans. I'm going away. And when he means by I'm going away, he means I am ascending. I'm going to die. I'm going to die on the cross, go into the tomb, rise again, ascend to heaven. But I won't leave you as orphans. One day I will come again to get you. Thousands of years from now when I return. Well, the second coming is a very important part of Christianity. If Jesus doesn't return bodily in his second coming, then evil will not be judged, this world will not be remade, and we will not live on the new heavens and the new earth. That is critical to Christianity, that Jesus is one day, someday, going to return. But is that what he means? Well, there's a third option, and I think this is what he's talking about here. I think Jesus is here again speaking about the giving of the Holy Spirit. In other words, what Jesus is saying in the giving of this other paraclete that he just mentions, that, that he just mentioned and, and will continue to talk about, see, this statement is in the context of everything he's saying about the Holy Spirit. He's just said that by the giving of this other paraclete, that when he is given to you, Jesus is saying, I myself will come to you. That when this Holy Spirit comes to you, it will be as though I have come to you. Notice the language of verse 19. I think this gives us a clue. In verse 19, he says, yet in a little while, and the world will see me no more. He actually said that same kind of thing earlier. In John chapter 7, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And then Jesus looks at them and says to them, 
I will be with you a little longer. See, in, in a little while, I'll be leaving. I'll be with you a little longer. And then he says, and then I am going to him who sent me. I'm ascending. I'm going back to the Father who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. He's almost saying the exact same thing here. In a little while, I'm, I'll be leaving and the world will see me no more. So he's talking in John 7 absolutely about the ascension. I believe that's what he's talking about here. He's saying, I'm leaving you, I'm ascending to my Father, but I will send you the Holy Spirit, and when I send him to you, I will be with you, and I will not leave you as orphans. In fact, when you compare this passage to the very end of Matthew, Matthew's gospel, we call it the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28. This is after Jesus has risen, he's been with them, he's about to ascend into heaven, and what does he say? Jesus comes to them, he gives them this Great Commission. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, in light of this authority that's been given to me, and make disciples of all the nations. This is what I want the church to do. Make disciples of all the nations. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I want you to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And the last thing he says, the last words of Matthew's gospel is, and behold, I am with you always even to the end of the age. Jesus is about to ascend, but he says, in the Holy Spirit, I will be with you always. And that is how we are not left as orphans. When he sends, if, if he meant only that brief span of time that's very important, that they see him after he rises from the dead, before he ascends, how could he assure them that you're not going to be left as orphans? The only reason that the church is not orphaned is because Jesus is in us now. He's with us now, and he's with the church always, even to the end of the age when he returns. When the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in a person because of that mutual indwelling that we talked about a few sermons ago, that co-inherence, when Jesus was saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. The Father is in me, I am in the Father. He's saying all these words. The same thing applies to the Holy Spirit. That because of this mutual indwelling, that when the Holy Spirit enters us, through his presence in us, Jesus himself comes to dwell in us, in the person of the Holy Spirit. Notice verse 20. In that day, in the day that you receive the Spirit, you will know that I am in my Father, that you are in me, and that I am in you. It's interesting that Jesus, here again, he says, I am in the Father, which he's already talked about a lot, but then he uses two ways to describe a Christian, two ways to describe his followers. One way he describes them is, you are going to be in me. And the other way he describes it is, I am going to be in you. It's interesting as you look through the New Testament, especially Paul's letters, that when Paul is describing a Christian, Paul's most used phrase over and over and over again throughout his letters to describe a Christian is the phrase, in Christ. If you are a Christian, in Paul's words, you are in Christ. 
Just go back to the passage that Jim read earlier, Ephesians chapter 1. If you read through that amazing chapter again, chapter 1, what you see in there is an incredible list of amazing blessings that a Christian receives by being united to Christ, by being what Paul says, in Christ. In that one section, that small section of Ephesians chapter 1, what we find, Christian, brother and sister, is that in Christ, we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That in Christ, we were chosen by God the Father before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. That in Christ, we were predestined for adoption as sons. That in Christ, we have been blessed with God's glorious grace. That in Christ, we have been given redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. That in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. And that in Christ, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit who Paul in that passage describes as our guarantee or as our inheritance. Paul describes the Holy Spirit that way, that the Holy Spirit is what he calls a guarantee. And that word that he uses there, that he describes the Holy Spirit, it was a word that was used in agricultural language in the day. When he says that, you are, the Holy Spirit is this guarantee. What he means is that when somebody would make a payment of, to someone else of part of their crops, when they would give him that payment, what they were saying was, this is the first installment of the entire thing to come. What I'm giving you now is a guarantee that you will receive all the rest of the payment later. That's the exact word that Paul uses for the Holy Spirit, which is why he can say that if you now have the Holy Spirit, you are guaranteed eternity with God. The Holy Spirit is that down payment. He is that first payment of the payment in full that is to come later. You can sort of see the giving of the Holy Spirit and us being with God in glory in the same way that you can kind of see Christ's resurrection and our resurrection. Paul speaks of Christ's resurrection as the first fruits. Christ was raised the first fruits. What does that mean? It means that Christ is the first crop of a guaranteed crop to come. He's the first fruits. He's not the full crop. I had a seminary professor say, when you think of the resurrection, when you think of Christ's resurrection and you think of our resurrection, don't So much think of it as two separate events, as Christ was raised and one day we will be raised as well. He said, think of it as one event that happens in two stages. That Christ is the first stage of the final resurrection and that all who are in him will certainly be raised as well because he was raised the first fruits. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee and in Christ, Brothers and sisters, we have all of these things. And that is just one passage in one New Testament book. 
Over and over again, we're told of these unbelievable and eternal blessings that we have because we have been placed in Christ. And Jesus uses that word, but he also says, and I'm going to be in you. You will be in me, and I will be in you. And Paul also uses that language. If you go and read Romans 8, uh, verses 9 through 11, he says, speaking to Christians, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although your body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So once again, you can look at it either way. Either we're in Christ or he's in us, both are true, and in both senses, we have been given unbelievable blessings. Now, I know you hear this, especially if you've been in church your whole life. You've heard these words many times, but let that sink in this morning. Because I know every one of you here this morning is dealing with something. You're dealing with some hardship that accompanies life in this present evil age. I had a rough day yesterday for all various reasons. By the end of the day, I told Michelle, I just feel wiped out. I feel completely spent because of today, because of lots of things that happened. Yesterday was a hard day for me. Sunday is always kind of a hard day for me because I'm, I'm exhausted by the end of this time. All of you have hard days as well. All of you are dealing with something right now. But right now, as we sit here in this present evil age, in a world that is so full of doom and gloom, in a world that, and a life that is so full of hardship right now because Christ is in you and because you are in him, this isn't all there is to your life. You will one day dwell in glory it is guaranteed now. It's not something that you have to hope for. If you are in Christ, you are as good as seated with him now in the heavenlies with God. Let that sink in today. John Calvin says this, the Holy Spirit is the bond that unites us to Christ. He says we have to understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us, and as long as we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. If Jesus did everything that he did, and yet we are not united to him, then we don't get the blessings and the benefits. The Holy Spirit is who unites us to Christ in his life and in his death and in his resurrection for us. Now, Notice how the relationship expands in verses 21 through 23. Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judah says, Lord, how is it you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and the Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. 
Now, I've already gone over in the last two sermons, if you have any questions, you can go listen to them, those, those statements about love for Jesus and obedience for Jesus. He switches it up here a little bit. He's already made a statement of fact. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He's made these promises. Here, he kind of rearranges it and says, the one who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. He's putting it this way. He's saying the same thing, but just in an opposite direction. The one who loves me will obey me. The one who obeys me is the one who loves me. But what's interesting for this sermon is notice how much the Father is included in Jesus' statements here. Jesus has already talked about how, again, I am in the Father, the Father is in me. But notice here that in this discussion of loving me and obeying me, notice what he says now. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Then he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. You can see here how what began as Christ's emphasizing the coherence of the Father and Son is now expanding, in a sense, to be the coherence of Father, Son, and Spirit together. Wherever one member of the Trinity is, there are the other two. Because they all mutually indwell one another. And what's really interesting is you can go back to those same passages that we looked at. Paul's passages, Ephesians chapter 1 and Romans chapter 8. And you can just read them. In fact, I was talking to, to Jim earlier, you know, before he read and before the service started. And he was saying, you know, Debbie Ann and I were just going through Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 2. And we were just noticing how much Paul stresses the phrase, but God. All of these things used to be true of us, but God did this for us. That's one way. I, I would encourage you, just a side note, just go through sometimes the same passage five different times and look for five different things that you can highlight. It's like looking at a diamond and turning it in your hand and looking at all the different facets and the different ways you can look at that same diamond. If you go back to Ephesians chapter 1, we just looked at it and saw all the ways that we are blessed in Christ. But you can go back to that same passage and see just how intimately involved God the Father is in our salvation. It's not this sort of popular notion that, that God the Father is the angry one, that he is the, the wrathful one, that he's the one that probably doesn't want us into heaven, but nevertheless, Christ goes before his Father and pleads our cause, and he reluctantly lets us in because Christ has somehow won the argument. No. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints here in Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
In love, he, God the Father, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, God the Father's, to the praise of his, the Father's glorious grace, in which he, the Father, has blessed us. One New Testament scholar puts it this way, God does not plan salvation and leave it up to us hoping we will believe and persevere to the end. No, God's grace gives us every assurance that what he planned, he will accomplish in us. He is that sovereign. In fact, the Trinity is the reason grace is sovereign to begin with. So inseparable are the Trinity and grace that Paul cannot describe our salvation without referring to all persons of the Trinity. And you see this in Romans chapter 8. Go back to that passage. What do you see? In Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is described three different ways. Listen to how he describes it. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. What does he mean there? The Holy Spirit. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Then he even puts it this way. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, that's now the spirit of the Father. He who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. In that one, in those few verses there, Paul speaks of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the Father, and Christ in you. And he speaks of them all as the same thing. St. Augustine put it this way, the Father plans our redemption the Son fulfills our redemption, and the Spirit applies our redemption. All three work hand in hand from before the foundation of the world to redeem the church, the bride of Christ. Brothers and sisters, all three persons of the Trinity are intimately involved in your redemption from start to finish. Jesus didn't die on the cross to hopefully pay for the sins of some people. He died on the cross as the ransom payment for his bride, his chosen people from before the foundation of the world. Your salvation is guaranteed if you are in Christ. Brothers and sisters, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, Rather, my Father and I are going to make our home with you. Let that sink in. Think about the sheer wonder of that statement because when Adam and Eve sinned, prior to them sinning, they dwelt in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was a garden temple. It was a place where they could be in the immediate presence of God. And when they sinned, maybe the saddest part of the fall was that they were cast out of the presence of God. 
a flaming sword barring their return. And from that day on until Christ came, the question, the, the question that, that had to be in, in everyone's mind, at least for generations, is how do we get back into the presence of God? We've been cast out. And now we have to live in this fallen world of sin and evil. The question became, how can a sinful people dwell with a holy God? The Bible's answer for pages and pages and pages was, you can't. It's impossible for a sinner to dwell in the presence of a holy God. Oh, God, in one sense, dwelt with his people. He chose Abraham, said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he, he led Israel, his people, through the wilderness. And, and when they lived in the wilderness, they lived in tents. And God symbolized his presence with them by plopping a tent down in the middle of their campground. He said, I'm going to dwell with you in a tent as well. His tent was a lot more glamorous but the main difference between his tent and anyone else's tent is that you couldn't walk into it. You could go visit anyone else that you wanted, but if you stepped foot in God's tent, you would die. The tabernacle had sections to it. And the closer that a person got to the Holy of Holies, the greater became the requirements for his holiness. In fact... So great were the requirements of holiness that the only way into the presence of God was through a sacrifice. Through a sacrifice of an unblemished male lamb. God's holy justice for sin had to be satisfied because God could not simply overlook sin. And so God instituted the offering. And the burnt offering had to be a male without blemish. And the priest would burn the entire sacrifice on the altar. Everything had to be given to God to pay for sin. That burnt offering signified two things. It signified complete and entire dedication to the Lord and complete and entire destruction of the sacrifice for the Lord. And that's the way it went. Year after year after year, People would dwell, sinful people, around this tent that they could not enter. And then the tent gave way to a temple. And the temple had the same structure, the same courts, the same holy of holies, and the same requirements. And so for years, thousands and thousands and thousands of sacrifices were made so that one day out of the year, one man, the high priest, would enter that holy of holies, and he only after sacrificing for his own sin, and no one else was allowed into the presence of God. And that went on, and it went on, and it went on. And then the Gospel of John tells us something amazing happened. The first chapter of John tells us that the Word the eternal word became flesh. He took on flesh 
and he tabernacled among us. The eternal God took on flesh, he veiled his glory so that he could live among sinners, so that he could teach sinners, and so that he could be what every, everything that the temple pointed to. He could be God among us. He could be the high priest that went before us, and he could be the sacrifice for our sins. And when Jesus went to the cross, he became the embodiment of the burnt offering. He became the one who in himself was complete and entire dedication to the Lord, and in him was complete and utter destruction for sin. But an amazing thing happened when he died. When he died, Scripture says, the curtain, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from everyone else, that didn't allow anyone into the presence of God, was ripped in half. And it was then, finally, that the question was answered. How can a sinful people dwell with a holy God? The answer was in Christ. And Scripture says that for those of us who are in Christ, Paul says, you, don't you know that you are now the temple of the living God and that God dwells in you? Or as Jesus put it that evening to his disciples, I am going away, but one day my Father and I will come and make our home in you. The answer is Jesus. The answer is to be found in him. And brothers and sisters, not only are we not orphans, we have become the temple of the living God. And because he dwells in us, one day, Scripture says, this is our future with him. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for giving us this precious word. Thank you for reminding us, Lord, of the future that we have Lord, thank you for reminding us of the present that we have. That we know that we are not orphans, Father. We know that in Christ we have every blessing in the heavenlies. Thank you, Father, that you have come in your spirit to dwell in us with your Son. 
and that your son will be with us always, even to the end of the age. Father, encourage our hearts as we leave today. In Christ, amen.